Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. One of the darkest verses in the Bible has to do with Judas. That was one of Jesus' closest 12 friends. It's John chapter 13, verse 30. The scene is the Last Supper. It's still fresh on our mind because we participated in the Lord's table that began at this Last Supper. But the first Last Supper, it was the night before Jesus died. And he was there in an upper room and he had his 12. These men who for three years had been his closest companions had been with him. He appointed them to be with him. And they were with him. Through all the highs and lows of ministry, for three years' time, these were his closest friends, and now he's in an upper room, and they are reclining at a table, having a meal. It will be Jesus' final meal. And at this table, Jesus dips a morsel of bread, and he hands it to one of the twelve, Judas. So, we read, after receiving the morsel of bread... Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Judas went out. And that means, before he went out, he was in. You can't go out unless first you're in. That's the poignancy. That's the pain of the verse, is that Judas had been in, in the closest circle of Jesus' companions. But he went out. We know that even while Judas was in with the twelve and with Jesus, he had already in his heart gone out. He had made a financial arrangement with the temple leadership as to how to betray Jesus to them so that they might put him to death. So he was in, but he wasn't really in. He was there with them, but he was not really of the twelve or Jesus. He was not sincere. And therefore, as is to be expected, he went out from them. He didn't stay there forever. His heart wasn't with them. He went out. And when he went out, what did he find? It tells us, and it was night. When Judas, Judas left the presence of the light of the world, what would you expect him to find outside except darkness? He went out from the light, and he went into darkness. Amazingly, about a thousand years before that happened, David had predicted it with his own lament. He said, Quote, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. When Jesus had his close friend Judas go out into the darkness to betray him, Jesus set a pattern for all Christians for all time. If you've experienced betrayal, don't whine about it. What do you think you were called to in the Christian life? We're not above our master, are we? No. It is enough if we could just become like him, and if we must become like him in suffering, even better. Jesus was betrayed. There was one who was close to him, professed him, claimed to follow him, and then left, forsook him, no longer professed him, rejected him, and was gone and betrayed him to his hurt. This is a pattern that Jesus has set for the Christian life because all of you, with almost no exceptions, have experienced or will experience 
those who come into this fellowship, those who come into your life, and who, like the rocky ground that Jesus elsewhere spoke of, receive the word immediately with joy. And there is a sort of vigor. They say they have trusted in Christ and you see them so active. They are a part of your life. You're excited. They're excited. Some of them mentor you. And then they go out. Not necessarily out of this physical church. They go out from the fellowship of believers. And today, you know many of them by name. You can think of them. Today, they don't even believe Jesus, that he was the Son of God. This is a pattern that we see in Jesus' own life. I call to mind my best friend in high school. I had come to Christ in high school early on, and just one or two years later, when I didn't really have any close friends my age who were believers, then the Lord provided. One of my brother's friends came to Christ, and we quickly became best friends because now we had this common interest, and it was exciting. We met together. We prayed together. Mutually, we tried to lead our other friends to Christ. A wonderful time. And then he went out. And today he doesn't believe that Christ is the Son of God. Then I think about the first person outside of my family who discipled me. I was still in high school around this time. And I had a person older than me, but in college, start investing in me. We sang hymns together. We went to the riverfront. We evangelized side by side. Some of the most significant growth early in my Christian life was under his tutelage. I looked up to him. He still shaped me to this day. And then he went out. He left his family. He left the faith. I could give you more examples, but I don't think that I need to. You probably have examples of your own. What should you think about those who give every appearance of being believers who have even invested in your life, who have been significant helps in your pilgrimage, and then they go out, and they no longer name the name of Christ. Perhaps they turn aside to some false teaching, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, or something else, or perhaps they forsake the faith altogether. But you are left here, still in. They went out, you're still in, and it's as confusing for you as I'm sure it was for the 11 who were friends with Judas. None of them suspected him. And there they are left to figure out, now what do we think? What do you think about those who have left the faith? Well, you don't have to guess what to think, praise God. Because we have two verses in front of us in 1 John chapter 2 that are exact, about that exact thing. Those who are here among us in fellowship, who give every evidence of being a believer, and then they go out and forsake the faith that they claim to hold to. And John tells us about this for your help. So let's give attention to this text, 1 John chapter 2, and we're looking in verses 18 and 19. Children. It is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, 
they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. These are hard verses that we come to this morning, but I just want to remind you the very first word of them is children. John writes this and God delivers this to us today not to be discouraging, but actually just the reverse. It is to be an encouragement. This is a realistic text. Because when you live your life, you will encounter people who profess to know Christ and then turn away. Some of them will be your close friends and then they will leave. That is discouraging. There's no way for that not to be discouraging. But when this text is written, it is to children. It is to you who remain. It's to you believers who are here. And it is to bring you wisdom, and it is to bring you comfort, and it is to help you continue in the faith when the devil brings temptations because others have gone out. It is to keep you holding to the true gospel and not to be led away by the spirit of the Antichrist that's at work in the world leading others astray. So this text is discouraging, but it's meant to be an encouragement to you and a help. Some of you may feel confused to this day. When you think back on those who seem so much like Christians and then left. And therefore you have this passage. Of course, in an ideal world, everyone who names the name of Christ would finish well, would run the race with endurance, and like our brother John Wells, would run it to the very end in an ideal world. But we don't live in that kind of world. And therefore there are many who seem excited at the beginning, receive the word with joy, but are rocky ground. And when the sun of troubles rises, they wither, Jesus said. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about it, as I said, because it can be disillusioning. It can be confusing. It can make you feel unbalanced. And so John is writing to you, children, endearingly, to help you regain your balance when all around the earth gives way. God wants to be your help, your hope, your stay. It's like what Peter said, beloved, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. And it certainly feels strange when it happens. But as you can see in this text, you shouldn't be surprised because those who claim to be Christians walking away was predicted in the Bible itself. Here and in many places. So first it was predicted. And secondly, you don't have to be surprised because he presents this is how you should think of it. What do you think of those who walk with Christ, it seems, and turn away? He says they were pretending. So first, that those who are in the faith would apostatize and leave was predicted. Secondly, the way to think about it is that they were pretending. So let's see it under those two headings, verse by verse here. Begin in verse 18 where it tells us that this was predicted. He says... Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now if we're going to understand verse 18, we're going to need to define those two ideas. Number one is Antichrist, you've probably heard of that, what does that mean? Let's talk about that. Secondly, when he says it's the last hour, what does it mean that it's the last hour? So let's begin with Antichrist. What is he talking about here? John writes to them, you have heard already, they already heard this, that Antichrist is coming. Notice it's singular, just one Antichrist. 
and that that Antichrist is coming sometime in the future. The Bible presents this figure, the Antichrist, as some evil person who in the future, at the end of the end of the age, just about the time that the actual Christ returns, when Jesus comes back to earth, there will be another figure, the Antichrist. And you know the prefix anti. Anti generally means set against. It can mean who puts himself as if he were the Christ, and that will probably happen too. But I think the idea here is, here's the Christ, the main good guy. And here's the Antichrist, the bad guy. He is set against the Christ. The first time we find this figure in the Bible is not even in the New Testament. Actually, he was predicted all the way in the Old Testament in the prophet Daniel. In chapter 11 of Daniel, Daniel speaks of a king who is to come. And he says the king will profane the holy temple in Jerusalem. Listen to what Daniel says in chapter 11. He says, forces from this king will appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate, what we call the abomination of desolation, one of the most interesting English phrases to say, but certainly not very pleasant to encounter. The abomination of desolation says, he shall seduce with flattery, this Antichrist, this king. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. To simplify the matter, we don't have time to go in depth into Daniel 11 here. We can simply say that on the one hand, this king, this Antichrist figure who sets himself up in the temple and ends sacrifices, there was a partial fulfillment of Daniel chapter 11 in a figure who came about 150 years before the time of Jesus. This figure was a Greek king of the Seleucid Empire and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. This Greek king came into Jerusalem, attacked it, took over, went into the temple, and there set up, 150 years before Jesus, there set up an idol or an altar to the Greek god Zeus, and supposedly sacrificed an unclean pig in the temple, which would be to profane it. So Daniel predicted that in Daniel chapter 11. And we would think if this figure... This Antichrist never came up again. We would think that was the conclusion of his role in history. Well, that was certainly a fulfillment of what Daniel was talking about. But we know, and Old Testament prophecy does this often, we know it was not the complete fulfillment of the Antichrist. Now, how do we know that? We know it from Jesus himself. In his ministry, 150 years after Antiochus Epiphanes, who was certainly un-Antichrist, but 150 years later, Jesus said to his listeners, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then Mark adds a parenthesis and says, let the reader understand. <laughs> well, we're trying, Mark. <laughs> we wish he would have told us more about it. But anyways, let the reader understand. And then Jesus says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus gave that during what we call the Olivet Discourse. This was toward the end of his life before he was crucified and he gave a long, in Matthew it's a whole chapter, at least one, maybe two or three. 
He gives a long discourse where he's talking about end times. But he says abomination of desolation. And he's referring not back to Antiochus Epiphanes, who Daniel was clearly referring to at least in part, but he's pointing forward. He's telling his readers, when this happens, you run away from Judea. This is what we can call a prophetic telescoping. Have you ever heard of this? It's almost like, and this is perhaps not correct on how telescopes work, but let's just say you have this telescope and you can give a near lens or however that works. Some of you will correct me later, so please do. I, I'm not really sure. But you can look closer, but then you can extend it out and look further and further and further. And sometimes prophecy in the Old Testament will do this. Where looking close, Daniel is seeing Antiochus Epiphanes about 150 years before Jesus. But if you extend the lens out, you realize that was only a near or partial fulfillment of what Daniel was talking about. We know that has to be true because Jesus uses the same language. And somewhere in the New Testament it says, the desolation of ab the abomination of desolation to whom Daniel referred, makes it explicit. And he says, is still coming. And when he comes, run away. Okay? Getting a little tricky, all right. So if we extend our lens out, Daniel says, okay, Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus says, no, there's, there's more fulfillment yet. Jesus seems fairly clearly in the Olivet Discourse, he's referring to the end of the age, the end of the world that we're still waiting for. But there are elements of what he says in that discourse that seem to have a, a near fulfillment in AD 70. This is 40 years after Jesus is speaking in Jerusalem and he predicts that the Romans will come in and destroy the city, which they do. So when he says, you will see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, meaning the temple, is when you see that run away. The first thing Jesus is referring to is AD 70 when the Romans came in, worshipers of false gods, they come in with their idolatry into the temple itself and destroy it. And history tells us, the Christian historian Eusebius actually tells us that when that happened, the Christians in Jerusalem, they knew it was coming and they ran away. And they were resented for it actually by pagans, but they did. How did they know that? Right here. Jesus said, when you see it, run away. And they were surrounded by the Romans, run away. You following this? So, abomination of desolation, Antichrist. Who is this? Near fulfillment? AD or BC, about 150 years before, Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus says it's not completely fulfilled yet. AD 70, the Romans. The Greeks, the Romans, all of them coming into the temple and desecrating it. Say, so, okay, so now it's done. The Greeks, the Romans, we're done. No, we're not. <laughs> No, we're not, because the rest of the New Testament makes clear that that's another near fulfillment, that there's still a further, if you extend the lens, there's a further fulfillment that has not happened yet. Let me present that so you don't have to guess about it. Here's Paul. He's writing to the Thessalonians. He says this, that day, the last day when the real Christ returns that we're waiting for, it will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The rebellion, what is that? He'll explain. The man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat where he should not, in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The coming of the lawless one, this Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Almost an identical description of what Daniel foresaw, of what Jesus said was coming. Partial fulfillment in the Greeks, partial fulfillment in the Romans, and Paul says it's not done yet. These are Antichrist's small a, but there is a final figure still to come in history right about the time Christ returns, who is the Antichrist, big A. And just in case we have any doubt about that, I mean, obviously he's going in profaning the temple, he himself being the abomination of desolation, setting himself up as God. Revelation chapter 13, it seems that the Antichrist is the beast coming up out of the sea, symbolically, in Revelation 13, if you remember that figure. Because it says, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And that beast, empowered by the devil, the dragon, the devil, he makes war on the saints. And has his final destruction with the other beast and with the devil himself in the lake of fire. Does that make sense? <laughs> what we're saying is there were partial fulfillments of this figure, this antichrist, in the Greeks and the Romans. But they were pointing forward to something that hasn't happened yet. When Christ returns, the Antichrist, that those were just shadows of, the Antichrist will come. The way John puts it is, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, right? <laughs> well, at least now you have. <laughs> Antichrist is coming. A real human at the end of this age, he will deceive he will blaspheme, present himself as God, he'll war against the saints, and he'll finally be destroyed by Christ himself. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. It's a part of Christian teaching. It's not something new or odd. Now you might wonder, how did this piece of information help John's first listeners to know that there's an apocalyptic figure coming at the end of time and... He is going to do these things. Well, he didn't come during their lifetime, so was this just wasted breath on them? No, it was not, and it won't be wasted on us either, even if we don't experience the Antichrist himself. Why? Because, look what John says. You heard that Antichrist is coming. You already know that. So now, many Antichrists have come. In other words, John doesn't want you as can sometimes happen in the Christian life, if you're a certain sort of person, to begin pulling out massive charts where you write down every way prophecy is fulfilled in the future. You can do that. That's fine. But you can focus so much upon that that you forget there are antichrists right now. <laughs> and some of them will actually use those to sweep you away into some bizarre false teaching. John wants you to know that even if the Antichrist doesn't appear in your lifetime, there are Antichrists, small a, Antichrists. He's referring to false teachers. To John, every false teacher claiming to be Christian, but they're false. They're teaching something false. All of them are small a, Antichrists because they set themselves up against Christ. We're going to see as we go through John some of the false teachings of these teachers. We'll see them actually even down in verse 22. He'll say, who's the liar 
But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Seems convenient that an antichrist would deny that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist, meaning small a antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Then in chapter 4, John will speak of false teachers as possessing, quote, the spirit of the antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John is focusing on those fierce wolves that throughout church history have arisen, not out there somewhere. They arise, Paul says, among you, among believers, and they lead people astray by bringing in new confusing doctrines that cannot be defended fully in the scriptures, maybe revelations they receive in in their own deceived minds, or ways of twisting the scriptures to their own destruction, as Peter says. Whatever they do, it's not sound doctrine. They twist the gospel and they alter it and they lead people away. But John's point is they start here among us. They start in a Christian community. And they are antichrists, false teachers. You have heard that antichrist is coming. Now, as a side note, just so you're aware, as we talk about these false teachers going out, these false Christians going out in the next verse, I do want to make it very clear to you, John is talking about people who are not true believers. Here in our American context, you will have people in any church who will be part of the fellowship, true believers, and they'll leave for a variety of reasons, and they'll end up at another church. We're not talking about them. They went out, false teachers, we're not saying that. Some, some will be. Others will just be true believers and they're somewhere else. So the Bible has a lot to say about that, about unity and so forth. That's not what we're talking about in this passage. John is talking about antichrists who by definition are not Christians, okay? Not true believers and they go out from the fellowship. And the first thing he wants you to know is you can have a confidence Even when that painful thing happens where these false teachers and their followers go out from fellowship, don't be surprised. It's predicted. You got Daniel, you got Jesus, you got Paul, you got John. What else do you want? It's predicted. Not only will the Antichrist come, but Antichrist in the meantime, and they'll lead people astray. So that's Antichrist. Hopefully that makes a little more sense to you. But he also talks about the last hour. What is he talking about here? He's saying, grieve, but don't be surprised if people are drawn away or if they leave from our fellowship to follow either unbelief or false teachings. Because children, he says, it is the last hour. And when you see people apostatizing from the church into unbelief or atheism or agnosticism or some kind of other false doctrine. When you see that happening, you say, oh no, is Christianity true? He says it's predicted that that would happen. That confirms Christianity. Jesus said it would happen. In fact, when you see that happening, it's not an attack against the Bible. It's actually just an indication that the time is getting closer and closer for Jesus to come back and fix it all. Things get dark before they get light. He says that. Therefore, therefore, because there's so many apostatizing, because they went out, therefore we know that it is the last hour. When he says last hour, you say, what does that mean? 
The last hour means there's nothing standing between us and the end of the end times. We are in the last days. That means it doesn't mean a certain amount of time, like in five years, last days. We don't know. Don't guess the time. You don't know the time, Jesus said. But it means there's no major redemptive historical event that God is going to do between where we are right now and the complete fulfillment of everything, the end. The Antichrist, tribulation, Jesus' return, all of that. That's the next event. It's us and it's that. Now that may be a long time or a short time, we don't know, but that's why we're in the last hour. There's not another hour in between. There was in the Old Testament, you had to wait, Jesus come. But now it's just us and then it's that. Could be tomorrow it starts, could be whenever. So it's the last hour and they had heard that in this last hour we live in, you should expect apostatizing to happen. In fact, more and more apostatizing to happen. It is a sad, confusing thing, but notice he says in the next verse, they all, that they all are not of us. The all suggests it's not just one or two. This is a large number even then who had gone out. Apostasy is not a mark against Christianity. Apostasy is a mark in favor of Christianity. It proves that the Bible is true because the Bible predicted that it would happen. Predicted it so many times. I'll give you some examples. The prophets and Jesus himself predicted it. Here's what part Peter says, that people would apostatize. Here's what Peter says. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. That's right now. With scoffing following their own sinful desires. So people go out the church scoffing, reject Christianity. Peter says, well, you should remember, we told you this would happen. The prophets did, Jesus did, the apostles did. What more do you want? Everybody said it's going to happen. And so it's happening. Don't be shocked. It's the last days. Jude writes this, but you must remember, remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, now, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. He's talking about false teachers there. There are false teachers, false believers. They go out. It's the last hour. That's what's supposed to happen. It's sad. It hurts. We hate it. Woe to the world for its stumbling blocks, but they are a necessary part of redemptive history. They're happening. It's not a mark against it. It was all predicted. One more passage. Here's Paul writing to Timothy. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, now, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It doesn't get any clearer. It doesn't make it easy when someone departs, especially into false teaching or into unbelief. It doesn't make it easier, but you can't say he didn't tell you so. The Spirit expressly says it right to you. There's all these passages, there's 1 John, there's Jesus himself. Everyone together is saying, prepare yourself. People will arise from among you and they will go out. And then it happens and it's like, <gasps> never saw this coming. It's like, I know it's painful, but it was predicted over and over. In the last days, in the last time, in later times, or as John says, in this last hour, this is what will happen. 
if we're surprised by it or or shaken by it, it's really our fault. God has communicated it to us very clearly many, many times. So first, although we grieve those who depart, it was predicted. Now we move on to verse 19. So you've heard Antichrist, Antichrists are coming. It's predicted, but moving into verse 19, okay, so it's been predicted this will happen, but if you have people who have gone away into false teaching or unbelief and they seem so much like you, like a Christian, how am I supposed to think about it? Verse 19 gives you the answer. Not only was it predicted that they would go out, but it tells us that this is how you should think of them, that they were pretending. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That really is the pain of it when he says they went out. Just like with Judas, it meant if they go out first, they were in. You can't go out if you're not in. Means beginning here in his fellowship, there were persons there in the fellowship with the believers in their church. And those are the ones who went out and are now leading cults and heresies and false teaching. And it's the same here with our fellowship and pretty much every true church. That you will have people who rise up here, are fostered here, we build friendships, we seem to all be laboring together, and then they go. Not to another church, but they go to a false church, or they go into unbelief, or they go into some weird online something, some, for, some false teaching, and they become addicted to that. It's painful when this happens, like I said, because to go out you have to be in. Judas' kiss would not have hurt so much if it was a stranger giving the kiss to Jesus. But Jesus said to Judas when he came, friend, do you betray me with a kiss? Friend. That's why it hurts us when someone rises up among us and goes out. It's not a stranger. Then I could bear it, David says, but it's you, my companion and my close friend. You went out, and that is the pain of it. Judas is a good example. He prophesied in Jesus' name. He cast out demons in his name. He performed many mighty works in Jesus' name. And Jesus in Matthew 7 says he will say to Judas and all Judases who go out from Christian belief, he will say to them, I never knew you. Notice Jesus doesn't say he'll say to those who leave, I knew you and then I stopped knowing you. He doesn't say you were reborn a Christian, but then you were unreborn. There's too many prefixes to begin with. He doesn't say that that happened. He doesn't say you were adopted into the family of God in truth, but then you failed and went out, and I unadopted you from the family. You never read that language in the Bible. Instead, Jesus says, I never knew you. Or the way John is putting it right here is they went out, they were here with us, They were never really of us. They looked like they were of us. We were convinced. They may have been convinced. They may have been tricking themselves. But he says, but the proof of it is that they went out. They abandoned the faith. If they, he says, if they would have been true believers, they would have stayed in the faith. He says, but they went out 
and that makes it plain. You don't have to guess. If they renounce the faith, it makes it plain that they were just pretending, maybe even tricking themselves. 1 John 1, we can deceive ourselves. They were just pretending. What John doesn't want you to think, and this can be a temptation, is I could lose my salvation. That would be a terrible way to live. In fact, this letter is written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't want to live your whole life wondering, am I going to lose, they lost their salvation, am I going to lose my salvation? And John is saying, no, they didn't lose their salvation. They never had salvation. It was not that Jesus, the good shepherd, lost one of his sheep. Oh, slipped over the canyon and it's gone. Oh, no. That was not what happened. In Jesus' words, he says, the reason you don't receive my words because you're not my sheep. I never knew you, says Jesus. Jesus said during his ministry that he was sent from the Father to do the Father's will, and he said, this is the will of the Father, quote, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And when you see a close friend even, Walk away, renounce the faith, turn away from it. You have to ask the question, did Jesus fail in doing the will of the Father? Did he lose one of those whom God gave to him? And the answer is definitely and decidedly, no, no. And John's saying, even if they put on a great show, even if it seemed to you impossible, they could not be a believer if they've renounced the faith, if they've walked away, if they've accepted and embraced fully a false gospel contrary to the gospel that you have received, they were pretending maybe really well. Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. He's good at it and his ministers disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They may have pretended so well that they convinced themselves, but it doesn't matter if they went out from the fellowship, not from the church, they can go to another church, but if they went out from the fellowship of the saints and renounced the faith, then they were pretending. They were not of us, that's what he says. Jesus didn't lose Judas because he never had Judas. Judas was not a sheep. And we know that because although Judas tricked everyone so well that at the Last Supper when Jesus said, one of you 12 will betray me, all the other 11 said, is it me? None of them said, oh, Judas, of course. They were convinced. He was one of their number. And yet we read in the Gospel of John that Judas had possession of the money bag and would regularly help himself to its contents. So what does this mean? That Judas was not a sheep, not at any point. He was wicked all the way through, but he put on a good disguise and he tricked everyone around him. Of course, not Jesus, but everyone else. That's what John says. They, false believers, false teachers, false believers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Because if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Brothers and sisters, this is the pain of the passage, them going out. And this is where there is a danger for us. And that's what God wants to treat with us. The danger, especially in our day, is you hear often of deconstruction. There's one example. 
We'll have someone who professes to know the name of Christ. It can be a prominent pastor. You may know who I'm referring to. It could be YouTubers. You might know who I'm talking about. It could be anyone who claims to be Christian and give what seem to be evidences, at least externally, where you would say, it seems like this person's a Christian. They speak our language. They're interested in what we're interested in. They seem like cool people. We could hang out. And then they deconstruct. That's the popular term right now, drawn from postmodern ideology, but that's the term right now anyways, is deconstruction. Now, some people use the word deconstruction simply to mean that they added on things to the faith culturally and they're trying to get those out. That's fine. You can do that. That's not a problem. But most people use the word deconstruction to refer to simply what John's talking about, renouncing the faith, leaving the idea of the physical birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything that John will say that these false teachers deny. And they renounce that. And it's called deconstruction. They see it just as some kind of cultural, usually oppressive type of system of belief. And therefore they renounce it and usually turn to something more pluralistic or more open seeming, more charitable, one with the universe type of a thing. I think of two popular YouTubers, and you might know them, who I always enjoyed watching, and both were. They didn't talk a lot about it, but both were Christians. You could almost just tell in how they talk. Their content, family-friendly. You think, oh, that's not typical. Why is this? And you Google it. You find out, oh, they were Christians, and they did a lot of Christian stuff. And it wasn't that long ago, I forget, maybe a couple years, where they put out a video where they talked about renouncing the faith, their deconstruction that they went out. They used to be in a church. They used to be very active in the Christian community. And then over time, they renounced it and they went out from fellowship and are not in fellowship now. They even addressed the objection. They said, our friends will tell us we never were believers. Well, their friends say that because it's in the Bible. He said, our friends will tell us we never were. But he said, but we know we were. Here's all the things we did. Like we genuinely were like committed and fully in, but we're just not convinced anymore. Well, they're, they're wrong, and our hearts go out and break when that happens, and John says, well, if they went out, they never really were of us. It is remarkable how much we can do outwardly that looks so Christian, and yet the heart not truly belong to God. This is the danger, and that's why John is writing to us. Certainly, this community of believers to whom John is writing are confused, what are we supposed to make? Here we are in the Roman Empire. Everybody hates us anyways. We've got this little enclave of believers. We're all huddled together for protection. And then a big chunk of us just go out and teach a different gospel. And now what are we supposed to think? And John says, don't be alarmed. It was predicted, predicted, predicted that it would happen. And don't think they lost salvation. They were pretending. They never were really of us. Satan likes to use deconstructions or any kinds of things like this to whisper thoughts into your mind. You have someone close to you, look so much like a Christian, they go away, and then the thoughts come. Look at the news. Look at all of the scandals. Look at all the hypocrisies of even conservative Christians. How do you know you're not just tricked? How do you know that these deconstructors are not the enlightened one getting out of some social construct? How do you know that? These are the temptations the devil brings. And that's why the apostle John steps in with the mighty word of God and says, enough. <laughs> no, they were pretending. And your attitude to them should be compassion, love, share the gospel, 
urge them to know Christ for the first time. That's what we do. They didn't lose salvation. They simply never had it. They were pretending. This is why Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, he said, be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. You heard them now. So when it happens, be ready, be on guard. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. If you receive his word, you are a disciple of his. But if you abide or continue in his word, you're truly his disciple. There's a difference. If you don't continue, if you go out, you are part of rocky ground and you wither away. You are never a believer. Now, some people will never leave the visible church. They won't go out from us. And it won't be until the day of judgment that Jesus takes the sheep and goats and separates them. But notice that in our text, John presents it as a mercy that they went out, as heartbreaking as it is. Because he says, they went out that it might become plain in the purpose of God that they all are not of us. It is a mercy to expose the fact that even while they're here, they're not truly believers. As much as it hurts, it's better for that news to be out rather than concealed. So this is heavy. And you probably have people in your own mind you are thinking about when we talk about this. But just return again as we close to that first word, children. This is heavy, but this is for you to keep your balance. Don't totter when others totter. Don't be led astray. The Antichrist wants to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It's not possible. Because we have the word of God. We are strong. It abides in us. And when others go out, we continue to love them. We share the gospel. We don't waver. We don't bend with the culture. Instead, we stay on the steady, narrow, as children of God. And like an obedient child, we obey. And like a true sheep, we hear Christ's voice and we follow him. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, our hearts are heavy for those who have gone out. I pray for those who are here present now and are pretending to themselves, to others. I pray that would not be the case anymore. I don't pray that they'd go out, but I pray instead that you would go into them into their heart and change them. I lived as a false believer for so many years and didn't know it. I pray that you would open eyes like you did my own, that they might truly be yours, that they would be of us and therefore not go out but abide to the end. I pray you would grant that, Lord. And for us who are your people, especially in this heated cultural time, that you would help us to hold firm to your gospel. It's not cultural, it's not from man. We didn't receive it through any man. It comes from you, it's here, black and white, in scripture. Help us to hold fast to it and not to waver, not to trust our eyes when we watch those departing from the faith and casting ridicule and scorn back upon it. Help us to believe what the word says as we've received it and as we've always believed it. It is the same and unchanging, you are true. And your people abide in you and follow you all their lives. I pray that you would grant that for all of us. It is in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.